Well, let me have you remain standing and take your Bibles out and turn them this morning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 27 through the first verse of chapter 9. So verse 27 of chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 1. Follow along as I read and give heed as I read this because this is God's word to us this morning. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. As we get ready to look into this, let's pray together for wisdom and guidance. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray for your blessing to be upon us as we hear your word proclaimed now. We ask for your blessing to be upon the proclaimer and upon us as we hear. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work in us that he would teach us, and we would go from this place rejoicing at having heard from you through your word and through its preaching. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, let us start with the unlikely topic of television game shows. We've all watched them. Maybe we still do. Uh, with the advent of first cable and, and now streaming services, and, and yes, young people, there was a time when those things were not around. They've not always been with us. Um, but with the advent of that, game shows may have become lost in the forest of reality shows and, and hundreds of other shows, uh, but they're still there. I think there's even a cable channel that is dedicated to them. But we've all watched them, and I suspect we have played along and we have cheered as the housewife from Podunk, Iowa, 
uh, has one a new washer and dryer, a year's supply of Eskimo pies, uh, maybe a vacation in some exotic seaport, or that holy grail of all game show prizes, a new car. You know, but if you look carefully at the end of the credits of a game show, at the end of the show, there's a little phrase that generally went by pretty quickly. You might have missed it. It says, all contestants must meet eligibility requirements. There were requirements. Uh, In order to be eligible to receive the things that you uh, played for and that you won, and you have to, uh, to agree as a prize winner to adhere to those, one of which, of course, was a visit from your favorite Uncle Sam, who was happy to share in your cornucopia of prizes and their value. So though the prizes were free, there was a cost. And interestingly, the same is true for Christianity. And the the joy and the, the blessing of being a follower of Christ. You know, there have been untold thousands of people in the past and today who have gone forward at invitations in churches small and large, in revival meetings, in church camps, and in huge stadium uh, crusades who have gone forward to, quote-unquote, receive Jesus and have filled out a card and have gone home only to, after a month or maybe a week or maybe the next day, have just gone back to their usual routine and given no further thought to the commitment that they made in response to the preaching of the gospel. And when those go forward without counting the cost of discipleship, it becomes evident pretty quickly that they are not willing to pay that cost. And therefore they show themselves to have not really been sincere when they put their name on the card. Jesus referred to these people as as those uh, who he called rocky ground, or we call them rocky ground hearers from his parable of the soils, the seed. Jesus himself, when he was teaching a, a great crowd which was following him one day, gave this food for thought. He said, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who will see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. That from Luke chapter 14. Sometimes we, we reformed folk with our emphasis, which we get rightly from the pages of the Bible, our emphasis on the free and the gracious offer of salvation, that whosoever may come, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. All of those wondrously true statements for which we give thanks. But sometimes we can get the impression 
And what's worse, we can give the impression to others that salvation is not only free and gracious, but that it comes without any cost whatsoever. And I'm not talking about the unimaginable cost that Christ paid in in securing our salvation by coming and dying on the cross, but I'm talking about the cost to the sinner. After accepting the free gift with an open hand, an empty hand, that comes uh, and receives that great gift, but of the cost demanded of every follower of Christ. That's what we're speaking of. What is the cost of following Christ? That is what we're going to talk about today as we continue marching our way through Mark's gospel. And it's a topic that's very pertinent in the church today. We've been inundated with, in the church with what is often called easy believe-ism which says that it really isn't important what you do after you come to Christ as long as you come to Christ. Or worse, that you can receive the promises of the gospel and receive Jesus as Savior, but not also have to submit to him as Lord. For the past few weeks, we've been with Jesus and his disciples as he left the area of the Sea of Galilee and, gone, and has gone north to Caesarea Philippi. And there, as we read this morning, uh, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, has confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, which drew a, a commendation from Christ to him, along with the statement that this realization was the result of the activity of God revealing it to him. And then Jesus, knowing that the content which the disciples and all of the Jews in their mind had poured into that concept of the Messiah, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that that was far from the right understanding, Jesus then taught the disciples, began to teach them, verse 31 here says, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. News that Peter soundly rejected and told Jesus so, taking him aside and rebuking Jesus, which then brought a strong and broad rebuke from Jesus as he stated that Peter's rejection of the true nature of the Messiah and his insistence that death was not the path for Jesus, that that was in fact demonic thinking more in line with what Satan himself had tempted Jesus in the wilderness earlier. But now we come to verse 34. And in verse 34, uh, the truth that a wrong idea of Jesus' messiahship leads to a wrong idea of discipleship. A wrong understanding of answering the question, how do you follow Jesus? And that leads to Jesus again giving further teaching. Remember we said a few weeks ago that when, as we entered this second part of Mark's gospel that we were going to encounter Jesus now with his disciples more as he's going to teach them more and more important things. That's what he does here. That's what he was doing in the passage before this. 
So Jesus begins to teach his disciples what it means to follow the Messiah, what it means to be a disciple. And it's not an insignificant thing. Though salvation is free, beloved, though it need not, indeed though it cannot be in the slightest bit earned by us, but is given to us absolutely freely, though salvation is free, it is also costly. Though it costs us nothing, Christ demands from us everything. And this is true, we will begin by noting, whether you are an apostle, one of the twelve, or you are, as we all are here, run-of-the-mill Christians. Notice what Jesus does as he gets ready to explain this, verse 34. He says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. Remember, Jesus had been speaking just to his his disciples, to the twelve. Now he calls the crowd together, those who were around To all of them now he speaks, to Peter and to James and to John and to the rest and to the nameless people in the crowd who were there that day. And to them all, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And see there the way Jesus says it. If anyone would come after me, whoever, if anyone wants to be my disciple, Jesus is saying, my follower, Remember, that's what a disciple is, is a follower. He says, here is what he should expect and be ready to do as my disciple. Not in order to become my disciple, but as my disciple. Remember, last time we looked at Jesus' teaching, shocking teaching, by the way, that his own path to glory would lead through the shame of the cross. And Jesus is about to teach, my brothers and sisters, that ours does as well. The path to true discipleship is paved with suffering and with self-denial and with the willingness to be subjected to those things. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now, of course, many have been, here in the text, have been coming after him, crowds, remember back in Capernaum, uh, there around the Sea of Galilee, have been coming to him to to get healings, uh, to hear his teaching, to see this man who has authority over nature, that is able to cast out demons, who can cure all manner of diseases, and even raise the dead, back in Mark 5. And you know there are multitudes today who come to Christ who associate themselves with the church in order to get the benefits of being a Christian. But this is different. Jesus is speaking of those who wish to really follow him. He's speaking to those who who wish to follow him as we are called to do. And so what we are going to learn, what Jesus is going to say here, is not just for the elite believer but it is a universal, basic condition for discipleship. And for those people, they must be prepared to do two things that Jesus mentions here, two things that are of the the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they are not the kinds of things that you would put 
on your list of requirements if you were gathering a group to follow you. The first one, there in verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Self-denial. For any who would follow Christ, Jesus says, this is an absolute necessity. And that's true, isn't it? If we think about it for a moment, it's true from the very outset of our Christian walk. To trust Christ at all, you really have to first be a self-denier. You have to deny yourself to stop trusting yourself in order that you will trust him. You have to realize that you are not able to save yourself from your sin. And that means to deny yourself. It means to realize that nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It begins there. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop when God graciously converts you and adopts you as his own child. But each one of us as God's children, as Christians, Christians, we have to deny ourselves in understanding that the rest of our lives are also a work of God's grace. We are still not going to contribute with merit anything that would cause God to owe us the completion of our salvation. You participate. You must, is what we're going to see here today. You work. You love. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but you only do so knowing that, as Paul says, it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Paul said to the Galatian church in Galatians 3.3, he said, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer to that rhetorical question is no. That's why he calls them foolish, because they were thinking that. And this has to be our attitude, not just in our initial salvation, but every day after that. As Christians, we are to continue to deny ourselves preferring others before ourselves. That's a continuing admonition in the New Testament. Romans 12.10, Romans 15.2, Ephesians 4.1 and 2, 2 Timothy 2.12, I could go on, but Philippians 2.3 and 4 get at the essence of this, where Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. He says, let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It means first and foremost, preferring Christ over ourselves, his will over ours, recognizing him as both our Savior and our Lord, knowing that we were bought with a price that we are not our own. We were talking in, and and you ladies were probably talking about this too, when we were uh, at Men's Fellowship last week talking about the opening of Philippians. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, a word that can mean slave as easily as it can mean servant. And it points us to the idea that we, beloved, are Christ's. We are his. 
He purchased and paid for us, and we are his. And he commands us to deny ourselves, something that this world does not put much value in. But Christ puts much value in it. So we have to deny ourselves. The second thing is that we have to take up our cross. Jesus says there, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's the image that Jesus gives to describe the lengths and the limits of self-denial. And it is the picture of a death march. You know, we have changed this in our society to, well, we all have our cross to bear. That we all have things that will inconvenience us or things that will challenge us. And that's just the way life is. But let's remember what Jesus is saying here. He says we have to bear our own cross. I mean, if anything, this is a stronger demand than the first one. And being able to, and being people who deny themselves, we are to take up our cross. Again, put ourselves back, as we did last week, in, in the place of the disciples as they heard this. Jewish men, part of the Jewish community, the Jewish people, for them, remember that this talk about the cross would be a jarring image, a shocking image. The Romans, of course, remember, uh, used and perfected crucifixion as a means, a form of capital punishment. And it was so terrible that the Jews considered being crucified a cursed death. And the Romans themselves would not use it on Roman citizens. So horrible was it. And those who were crucified were very often, usually, beaten before being crucified. Crucifixion, hanging on a cross, dying that way, could take several days of agony. And as a part of the pain and the the shame of crucifixion, the condemned were made to carry the crossbeam of the cross on which they would be crucified, to carry it from the place of condemnation to the place of execution. We know that from the the Gospels. We see Jesus himself had to do that. It would be very, of course, uncomfortable after having been beaten. We know that Jesus, when he was forced to do this, um, was not able physically to do it because of what he had endured before that. And when he was unable to, that a man named Joseph was, was compelled to carry his cross the rest of the way. But that's the picture. And this is given by Christ as a picture of what it means to follow Christ. The call to follow Christ is an all-or-nothing decision. In Matthew 10.38, Jesus said that whoever does not take this approach is not worthy of me. He put it this way, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is the way of discipleship. 
and it is extreme. We should notice that Jesus doesn't say, join me in taking up my cross. Right? Our, our, our deepest devotion cannot begin to approach what Christ did in bearing his cross. His death was redemptive. Nothing we do can be. But it's also telling that he says that whoever would follow him must take up his own cross. You must take up your own cross. And we should be careful about sort of watering that down to mean simply experiencing discomfort. This is a picture of death. A picture of walking to one's death. He calls us to have that as our attitude as we serve. To be ready to die if necessary. Now, through our being united to Christ, we are identified with him in his death. And we are called to be ready to follow that physically if called to. And of the people standing here listening to this When it was originally given, ten of them did, were called to do that. All of the disciples, all of the twelve, except for one, were killed for their faith. And if we will not carry our cross, one has said, we will never wear the crown. We have begun to follow him, and we must continue to follow him. Those who will follow Christ must follow him all the way, to set our eyes on him with every step we take, to walk as he would have us to walk, to follow him on that road that leads to death. Peter said, if when you do good and suffer, if you endure it, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you might follow in his steps. So this is how we are to walk. Now chances are we will not be called to physical death. But even as we are called to deny ourselves, we are called to put to death everything that we once held dear. And we do so knowing that we can't do this in our own power. Even as we're called to deny ourselves, we do that knowing that we can't do it in our own power. And so, brothers and sisters, let us pray fervently for the grace to follow Christ in this way. Let us learn God's word that we might know and understand what it means to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Christ. But be encouraged, Christian, If you have intention to do that, God will give you the grace to bear your cross in whatever form it may come, to actual death or to anything leading up to it. Now in these next verses, Jesus is going to expand on this and give the reasons that we must be willing to do this. Notice that in verses 35 and 36 and 37 and 38, they all begin with the word for. And that gives us four reasons then that we are to do this, four implications of what we are called to do. And the first presents us with the counterintuitiveness of Christianity. 
We see how it goes contrary to to human thought and to human effort there in verse 35. The first he says is forever, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the way of discipleship. By the way, I'll just mention that there were several times in preparing this sermon that I was going to entitle it, This is the Way, which some of you will get, some of you will not. But I decided not to. But this is the way of discipleship. Try to save your life and you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll gain it. What does that mean? It means that the one who makes efforts to keep his life under his control and to preserve that control over all else and is thus unwilling to join Christ on the way to the cross and to give up that control and to give it over to the Lord, that one will lose himself. He will lose that which we'll see is most precious, his soul. If you grasp your own soul with with all of your might, with a tight fist and are unwilling to give it over to Christ, it will slip through your grip and you will lose it forever, is what Jesus is saying here. If you want to be the captain of your own soul, by the way, the word that's translated life here is also translated soul, psuche, you may have heard it. But if you insist on being the captain of your own soul, of your own life, and proudly proclaim, this is my life, be sure that as captain of your soul that you will crash it onto the shore and be lost. But the opposite is wonderfully true as well, for which we give thanks to God this morning, that whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, for the Christian, in Christianity, death is the way to life. Give up control. Give up control and give it to the one who gave so much to purchase you and went through so much to protect your soul, to purchase your soul, to guide your soul. Lose your life and make it his life to do with what is truly best. Give it away, give it to him for his sake, he says, and for the gospels. And you will find that you have made a life, a soul-saving decision. Here is the exhortation to count the cost. Though salvation is free, the cost is high. Your life. You don't earn it again but it is what those who receive it freely are expected to do. The result is eternal life. And there has been, in the history of man, no better investment than investing your life in Christ. And here, also, the old adage about putting all your eggs in one basket is disproved. We are to commit all of ourselves to Christ, to give ourselves completely to Him, And fully, without a single reservation, to put ourselves, body and soul, in life and in death into the basket of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. No place is safer, and no place gives, if you will, a better return on that investment. 
Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In verse 36, then, we have the second reason given why we must be willing to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. And it comes from a, let's call it a cost-benefit analysis, a lesson in valuation, in looking at the value of something. He compares the relative value of two things, and we're going to take verses 36 and 37 together here. He says, for whoever would, I'm sorry, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul the answer to this rhetorical question is nothing nothing it is not worth the trade I remember as a kid in school when lunchtime came we would often engage in our own version, the schoolyard version of the New York Stock Exchange. We would see what mom put in our lunches and see if we could trade it for something that we really wanted. I'll trade you this apple for your Twinkie. And I'll trade you this peanut butter and jelly sandwich for your bag of Doritos. Um, Sometimes you traded wisely, sometimes you would end up throwing away what you traded your slice of apple pie for. Jesus asks, what are you willing to trade for your soul? What could you possibly take in exchange for that dear gift that the Lord God has given to you? What would make it a good trade to trade your soul away for? Fame? Power? Sex? Money, all of those. You know, there are stories scattered throughout literature and movies and television about the temptation and the dangers of making a deal with the devil. Selling your soul, trading your soul for for riches or for some ability. Uh, Niccolo Paganini, the 18th century violinist, was so good and could play such difficult passages and was able to play entire uh, pieces without any music. He would just memorize all of this. He was so good at the violin that there was a, there was a myth that arose and remained that Paganini had sold his soul for the skills to play the violin, sold his soul to the devil. And he was a much better player than Charlie Daniels. Or the legendary blues guitarist Robert Johnson, who famously, legend has it, sold his soul to the devil down at the crossroads there in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And all the way down to that literary icon Bart Simpson, who sold his soul to his friend for $5. Most of the time these deals have a catch, right? A hidden loophole that makes them interesting and it makes them end badly. But even if it didn't, would it be worth it? How about for all of that? For all of the world? Would that make it a good bargain? That was the bargain, remember, that Satan himself made to Jesus. He showed him the whole world. He says, I'll give you all of this if you'll worship me. 
But Jesus makes his point here by, by asking, basically, if you are willing to forfeit your soul, even if you would gain the whole world, you're a fool. The riches of the world, all of those temporary things that are destined to burn, so many people are willing to make that trade every day. But it's no contest because it's no real comparison. Jesus follows on there in verse 37 by saying, for what can a man give in return for his soul? How valuable is it, he's saying, he's asking. And again, it seems for many today, not very much. They're willing to give up theirs for so so little. But to get a picture of the soul's worth, Christian, consider what it cost to redeem it. Consider what Christ was willing to do to save your soul and my soul. And how about you this morning as you're listening? What would you take in return for your soul? Any of those things that we talked about? How about acceptance in the workplace, in your family, in school, in the community, among your friends that you don't have if you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ? How about a smoother relationship with your spouse? How about your sin? Or as we just saw, your own sense of control, your sense of self-importance. How about, well, it doesn't matter. The answer is the same. It is not worth it. And if you continue to refuse to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow Christ, you will have all eternity to regret it. And you will. Every second of eternity. Now, the last reason which Jesus gives here as to why anyone who desires to follow Jesus must follow him completely is this in verse 38, that whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those who are ashamed of Christ, and this is to the point of refusal to be associated with him at all, Refusal to be associated with him and his shame and his cross. If, as as Matthew puts it, if they deny him, he will deny them on the last day. If anyone prefers the honor and the acceptance, if you prefer the honor and the acceptance of the world to the self-denial and the cross-bearing of the Christian life here and now, Jesus says that you or anyone, that he will be ashamed of them on the last day when he returns in his glory. To be ashamed of him means to be so not self-denying, so appalled by the thought of the cross, so self-focused, seeking to save one's own life that a person really doesn't want to and will not associate or be associated with Jesus and his name. These are God-rejectors, Christ-rejectors he's speaking of here. And it's a real possibility. Jesus notes that, that he asks this, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation. That's a phrase that goes back to the Old Testament and describes the hard-hearted, spiritually adulterous, unfaithful, God-dishonoring people then who rejected God and the largely identical attitudes of the people in Jesus' day and in our day. 
And this is so counter to the way Jesus acted in regard to us who are worthy to, for Jesus to be ashamed of. But he wasn't because of his love that he set on you. Hebrews 2.11 says Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He suffered shame for us. He bore our shame when he bore our sin. Our sin, the greatest source of our greatest shame. And he did so, beloved, so that you need not be ashamed. And Jesus warns us here not to be ashamed of him or of his word which proclaims all of this. And by the way, this verse also reminds us, doesn't it, that, as I said earlier, the path that Jesus walked, that went by the way of the cross, that that road then went to glory, didn't it? In John 17, Jesus said to his Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you from eternity. And this, his path here ends in glory. Because it says when he returns, that it is in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then at the beginning of chapter 9, this is one of those weird chapter divisions that, uh, that, that priests so long ago riding along on horseback, uh, marking in, putting in verses and chapters. This is one of those places where he must have been distracted by something. Because this goes with this passage and, and not the next one. But Jesus adds that what ends on the last day, when he comes in the glory of the Father, when, we, when he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him and receive those who receive him, that that full and final consummation on that last day begins much earlier. It begins with the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, especially the resurrection points to that glory. Let me just read you a verse from Romans chapter 1 in verse 4. As Paul is, well, we'll beginning begin in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So what concludes with his return in the glory of his father on the last day begins with his resurrection. Events he he refers to here in in verse 1 of chapter 9. And he shares with the 12 here and with the rest of the world, the rest of the crowd of disciples, that he had called together that these things that are even now, when he wrote, being set in motion, that those world-altering events are, beginning, are going to take place very soon. Great events, grand events, as I said, world-changing events that are going to be foreshadowed in the event that we're going to look at next week and that begins where chapter 9 should have begun. Beloved, if we would be followers of Jesus... Let us count the cost. We have to be ready and willing and pray that God will make us able to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Without equivocation, without vacillation, without reconsideration, 
and without shame. Let us each count the cost. And so, in that way, let us follow Christ. And to that we say, Amen. Our Father, we pray that you would give us the the intention, give to us the ability to deny ourselves and to take up our our cross and to follow you wherever you would have us to go, whatever you may have in store for us, even to the point of physical death. We pray that you would give us what you would require from us. We pray, Lord, that we would understand the great value of our soul. We pray that you would help us to to see, therefore, what a great price you have paid to secure our soul. And we pray that we, with every beat of our heart, Lord, would continually seek to turn over our soul to you. For we know that there is no better place, no safer place, O God, to find it than with you, our almighty, our all-gracious God and Savior. Amen.